maybe we've been wrong about thinking about God's power. Maybe God is powerful, but God simply doesn't have the capacity to control creatures or even creation. And the reason God doesn't, according to my proposal, is that God loves everyone and everything. And love for God is inherently uncontrolling. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig News Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week on the podcast... My philosophy professor from college, Dr. Thomas J. Ord, joins me. Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's a best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than 25 books. Academic Influences ranks him among the most influential theologians in the 21st century. Tom directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary, and directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He's known for his research and writing on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, evil and power, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. This, my friends, was a fun conversation. If you want to keep up with the podcast, subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now, and you can find a consistent conversation happening on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Dig New Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Tom Ord. My first memory of you is my sophomore year in college. I am, I know very little. So I'm in philosophical quest at Eastern Nazarene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you you come in guns blazing with the teleological dispension, uh, wait, the teleological <laughs> suspension of the ethical. Is that it? That's right. Yes. Ooh, good okay. memory. Well, the only reason I remember that is because you made a rap to it that you played <laughs> on a tape in our class. <laughs> I ha I know no other terms. I'm I, I didn't take another philosophy class even in seminary, and I remember that term that I don't even know what it means. But, <laughs> and then the uh, the other thing is that you are known as like the love doctor. You're like the doctor of love. Okay. So even back then, I remember you sort of having this designation. And one of the things that I went home to my very conservative family talking about was this new idea that I'd learned from my philosophy, philosophy professor about how God is love. And that's like God's reigning characteristic. essentially. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then, but just so happened that the weekend that I was talking about this with my family, because I'd gone home for Thanksgiving or something, there was this uh, Calvinist pastor there oh. who, was, who was a friend of my father's. And he opened up the book of Romans and proceeded to tell me about how we're puppets. And it's not a problem that we're puppets. Like we should be grateful that right. we're, we're God's hands and feet and that God chose us. And so he flipped me to be a Calvinist. So I spent the rest of the semester. I was very impressionable at the time. I spent the rest of the semester as a Calvinist in your class. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, I'm happy that you remembered a few things like, you know, yeah, uh, not, 
professors, you know, it, it's strange. People think, especially people who are upset with the university, they'll send in letters and they'll say, oh, those professors, they're warping our students' minds. And, and the professors <laughs> think to themselves, they can't remember what I said yesterday. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. But, but, but what happens is someone like, someone goes home to a family where they tell someone that might be a trustee or a donate, uh, someone that donates and yeah. that's when that's when you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I'm curious. You know, that was over 20 years ago, right? So, yeah. Well, I was the, at ENC from '99 to '02. So yeah, that's yeah. 20, yeah, that was 20 years ago. Yeah, and I I graduated in '03, so okay. you had a briefer stint there than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but we, you know, I've I kept in touch, and I saw you at some open theology conferences and. Um, one of the things I think is really um, something that I don't hear a lot in mainstream conversations about Christianity, evangelicalism, is people talking about this view that you hold and that you talk about a lot everywhere you go, um, about open and relational theology. Would that be a good characteristic? That's Yeah, that's the label I typically use. How do those ideas intersect? What do you mean when you say open and relational theology? Yeah, uh... The relational stands for the idea that God is not only giving to us, but also receiving from us, hmm. that God is really affected by what we do. And if people read the Bible very much, they'll think that that's a pretty obvious, <laughs> pretty obvious idea. But the truth is that the majority of the major Christian theologians in history, people like Augustine and Aquinas and Martin Luther and John Calvin, hmm. they said God is not affected by what we do, which you know makes it hard to explain things like prayer and, and other things. But yeah. that's been the, we'll call it the, the view in formal theology for many, many years. Yeah. And relational theology says, nope, God really is affected by us. Hmm. And then the openness stuff, that's a little more controversial. It says that the future is open. God doesn't predestine it. In fact, God doesn't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future. And the reason God doesn't know this is that God doesn't sort of stand outside of time, mm. but God moves through time with us moment mm. by moment, giving and receiving in love. Uh, so that's the open part. And then usually people in the open relational camp, they want to rethink God's power so that God is not, re in my case, I don't think God even could be controlling. Uh, they usually want to emphasize creaturely freedom and uh, love. And so there's usually a, a number of ideas that are kind of under this big open and relational umbrella. Yeah. So thank you for that. T tell me a little bit about this idea that God can't be controlling this connection or, or lack thereof between love and control. What do you mean? When yeah. you say, I know you're, wait, is this the book you're working on? God can't. Yes. That, yeah. <laughs> well, right. no, God well, can't came out a couple years ago. Okay. Also. <laughs> the current <laughs> book I'm working on has another provocative title. Love it. The title is The Death of Omnipotence. Ah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about God can't and the premise behind that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the biggest reason people who don't believe in God say they can't believe in God is the problem of evil. If there is really a loving and powerful God, then why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there genuine evils, Holocaust, rape, torture, etc.? 
Yeah. Um, and the notion has been that God must have the kind of power that makes it that makes God capable or able to prevent evils if God wanted to do so. Right. But um, obviously evils occur. So, you know, you have certain options that you've probably heard and most people have heard, you know, options like saying, well, God allowed that to teach us a lesson or God was punishing us or God abandoned us or, you know, um, some people just throw in the mystery card. They just say, oh, God's ways are not our ways. You know, we just don't understand. Right. What I like to propose is that maybe we've been wrong about thinking about God's power. Maybe God is powerful, but God simply doesn't have the capacity to control creatures or even creation. And the reason God doesn't, according to my proposal, is that God loves everyone and everything. And love for God is inherently uncontrolling. Mm. And so if God must love and God can't control, well, God's not to blame for failing to prevent the evils of the world. Mm. Uh, that's so, there's so many questions that come to mind when I hear this. <laughs> yeah. So what do you, I imagine, and I know this from experience with you that you get a lot of pushback, but one of the things that I wonder about is obviously you're in relationship and having conversations with people who use the Bible as their primary source for how to understand the God of Jesus, right? Um, and so what what would you say is your approach to the scriptures? You know, people will say they're biblical literalists or it's the word of God. Mm. What would your approach to the Hebrew Bible, the Christian scriptures, what would that look like for you? And is there a term or an expression you use to define that? Yeah, I take the Bible very seriously. Mm. Um, and I don't think anybody takes it literally. We all make interpretations of scripture and some people who say they take it literally, but also know there's metaphors and analogies and similes and poetry, et cetera. So they really don't take it literally. But what they're trying to say, I think, is that they're trying to take it really seriously. Right. And uh, when it comes to this set of questions, there's there's really two issues at play, I think. One is, does the Bible say God is omnipotent or mm. almighty. Now, the book that I'm currently writing, I'm going through scripture and pointing out that where English translators have used the word almighty for God, the Greek and Hebrew doesn't have that word. Mm. It's an interpretive choice that people have made. Wow. Um, it, another question I, in fact, sometimes when I'm speaking at big audiences, I'll say, I'll give $1,000 to anybody in the room who can find a passage in the Bible that explicitly says God controlled a, a person or creation mm. and there was no creaturely input. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll say it's not there from the beginning, the creation of the world to hardening Pharaoh's heart, to the miracles, to the resurrection of Jesus, to the eschatological fulfillment. You all have assumed that that's the kind of power God has when you've read the Bible, but it's not explicitly there in the text. Mm. So that's the power issue. I don't yeah. think the Bible affirms omnipotence. The second question is, does the Bible portray God as perfectly loving? Mm. And here I would like to say yes, but I don't think it does. Yeah. I think the majority of scripture portrays God as loving, but I've read the Bible pretty carefully. And there are some <laughs> passages that 
just, you know, they, some passages say God wants you to bash babies' heads against the rocks. And right. I just don't think that's what a loving God would ask. Yeah. And I think the clearest view we have of God is in Jesus. And I don't think Jesus is telling us to bash babies' heads. Right. But I have to admit there are some passages that don't portray God as loving. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's the interpretive part, right? That's where we have to right. figure out where what we weigh and how how context plays in. I think that's one of the beautiful things, you know, you're referencing a psalm, right? It's one of the beautiful yes. things about um I think it does actually contribute a little bit to what your your thesis is that God isn't controlling. This is a person that's expressing their anguish over uh an enemy and how they've treated their people and how they've treated you know, their children and, and right. Uh, this gets to the, the, the really difficult question. And that is uh, how do we understand the inspiration of the Bible? Yes. You know, some people want to say in some mysterious way, God made sure that the Bible is exactly what God wanted. Even the stories that portray God is unloving. Right. And I just don't buy that view of inspiration. I yeah. do think God was involved in inspiring, but not in a controlling way, yeah. which then allows me to say, you know, some passages just get God wrong. Yeah. I know that that makes people <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> to hear me say that. But I, I mean, I guess I could, a, a person could take the view that God is loving sometimes but not loving other times. Cause you know, there's some passages of scripture that suggest God is not loving Sure, and God's kind of like your drunk uncle, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you want to get him when he's feeling good. Cause you know, if you get him in a bad spot, he's not going to be nice. Yeah. I would rather just say, Nope, there's some passages that just get God wrong and God yeah. is perfectly loving. Just the Bible doesn't always portray God as such. I love that because I do think I grew up with a drunk uncle. Um, okay. God, you, I, I think a yeah. lot of you, I think a lot of evangelicals did because yes. what, what we heard was that God was all loving, but our experience was tremendous fear that we would be sent to hell at any time. Right. So, <laughs> so right. So if that's the case, then we are dealing with a drunk uncle with, while not realizing it. Um, yes. Yep. And I, I am, think what motivated evangelicals today and in the past is they wanted to have a Bible they could totally count on right that was inerrant infallible no problems no you know because they wanted to have this certainty from this book right now they never really had it but theoretically they wanted that yes um and i don't think that's a good way to go i don't think we should approach the bible like that even though as i said at the outset i take it really seriously absolutely you can take it very seriously and not need it to be um, like floating on a cloud. And I, right. I, I think, I think um, one of the things that motivates our desires and our projections about God are fear, right? We want, we yes. need, we're afraid of what this life, uh, for good reason, this life is, has a lot to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people find comfort in the God that can control, mm -hmm. that does control, and that promises a certain outcome. How do you, I imagine it's a tough pill to swallow then when you're talking about God can't with certain groups of people. Are, are there experiences that you have of people kind of giving that pushback and you're walking alongside of them? What does that look like for you? Oh, yeah, there's definitely pushback sometime. I'm actually more surprised at how many people accept it. Yeah. Just about any place I go and give a lecture on these ideas 
there's always people who come up afterwards and they'll say to me, you know, I've always kind of thought what you've been telling us. I've always wow. kind of intuited it. I never had the right words. Um, so I, I'm more surprised that, that people are so accepting. Yeah. You know, and then there's some people, probably the majority who are like, Oh, some of this sounds good, but I got to think about this some more. And, and to those people, I say, you know, no problem at all. That's, that's the wise thing to do. Consider, yeah. Continue to reflect on it. Uh, but then there's some people who, you know, kind of put up a cross and say, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, interestingly, those people are often the ones who eventually come around. <laughs> of course. But, that was, uh, yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I liked you, but I thought you were a tool of the devil. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, get in line. Get in line. <laughs> okay. So that, that was a long time ago. And I met, you know, you were younger then, and I know that a you know a lot of people take a little while in their life to come to different mm -hmm. conclusions about God and and understandings. So I guess I wonder where this all came from for you. Like, how did you grow up? Did you grow up with more of an understanding of a loving God through Jesus, or were you kind of raised with that drunk uncle thing that we were talking about? Yeah, you know, I had I had a bit of both. Hmm. Um, I, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a part of the Wesleyan theological tradition, which mm -hmm. if it follows the writings of Wesley, should emphasize a God of love. Right. But in reality, a lot of churches of the Nazarenes um, were not portraying God in that kind of way. They still had the fear thing going on, the God who's going to kick your butt right. and send you to hell and that sort of thing. So uh, I heard that and I had to wrestle through those issues. Uh, it was oftentimes the problems of evil and suffering that kind of kept bringing me back. Like, I, I want to believe there's a loving God, yeah. but, you know, why do these bad things happen? Right. Uh, so that, that played an important part of it. And, you know, who knows all of the d things that go into shaping a person's beliefs. Right. <laughs> I'm sure there's things <laughs> I'm not aware of. Absolutely. Uh, but those were definitely part of the process. Yeah. And when you're when you're going around a lot of times nowadays you are engaging with a lot of people that probably have been born and raised and experienced this you know this tradition and do you interface a lot with people outside of your own tradition and is it in like in a yes. debate debate format like how or is it typically you're lecturing these days what do you what do you find that you're spending your most amount of time when you're speaking out in public doing yeah well, strangely enough, in my life, I've become less and less connected to the Church of the Nazarene mm. because I've been seen as controversial. And <laughs> uh, the leaders in that tradition, you know, keep me at arm's length. Mm, wise. That doesn't mean that I'm... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That doesn't mean that I'm only speaking to progressive crowds. I still speak to pretty conservative places and universities. Mm. Um, and usually, you know, they they try to buffer me in some way by having other voices, but still I'm given an opportunity to talk. Mm. Um, so yeah, my, my, my audience is much broader these days good. and nice. yeah, I think that's pretty good overall. Yeah. I mean, to, in, in their defense, love is very dangerous. Um, yes, it is. When you can't control people, you open up a can of worms and people can do what they yes. will. <laughs> 
Yes, that's so well put. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's true of me as an individual. Mm. You know, sometimes people in leadership positions want me to tow a particular party line. Mm. And I do sometimes because I think it's the loving thing to do. But if it contradicts love, as I understand it, yeah. then I, I'm a kind of person who will strike out against what I think is wrong in an institution. And so, yes. um, yeah, that, that creates problems for me sometimes. Yeah. And it created problems for you back when I knew you. And yes. I, I, I'm curious, you know, when people hear the word love, I think we, we know as Americans that that conjures up a particular idea, right? Yeah. Um, but your definition of love, I would imagine, is based on the life and teachings of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think love is about promoting well-being, flourishing, blessedness, the good life, what the, the Jewish tradition calls shalom, what Jesus called abundant life. Yeah. And so... Um, and and it's not just for me or for my family, but it's for my enemies and strangers and for other creatures on the planet. I even think I can promote God's well-being. Mm. Um, so love is central to how I think about things. And love mm. means acting to promote well-being. Okay. Tell me a little bit about promoting God's well-being. I haven't heard that. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I, you know, I earlier said I think God is relational. So what I do can affect God. And I think the scriptures are pretty clear that what we do can affect God negatively or positively. Mm. So um, if I do things that uh, please God, then I'm affecting God's well-being, God's experience, you might say, mm. in a positive way, at least in that moment. So um, it actually, you know, it, it's really been helpful for me as I think about praise and worship in a, a like a, a congregational setting. Mm. Um, I remember when I was younger, I, I, I was singing this song one time in church and I was thinking to myself, are we just singing these words to remind ourselves of divine attributes, you know, mm. God's love, mercy, sovereignty, whatever it was. Um, is it just for us? Mm. Or does it for God in any sense? Can we actually do what the psalmist says and bless the Lord? Mm. Um, and as I thought about God being relational and that my praise and worship might actually positively affect the God of the universe, man, it like super motivated me to wow. actually take praise and worship seriously. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. All right. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I notice, um, you know, and I follow you on social media and you, you are a photographer as well, correct? Mm, yeah, I am. So I imagine one of the ways that you promote God's well-being, promote your own well-being is through being in nature, through expressing, yes. you know, your background is a beautiful, is it a picture you took? It is. Yeah. yeah. This is in the Northwest, um, I'm sorry, Northeast Oregon in the Wallowa mountain range. Wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, you know, is this one of the ways that you also experience or express worship for the creator? Is that kind of a, like one of many ways that you feel like you can, you know, uh, promote God's well-being or, or, or people? Yeah, you know, I suppose most of the time when I'm doing making art and hiking, I'm not thinking so much about God's well-being. Sometimes I do. Yeah. It's more of an expression. Well, I, I do this for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Excuse me. 
I, uh, I do it in part for the exercise, in part to sort of have some headspace to meditate and pray and kind of think about my life. Mm. I do it because I want to create something beautiful and being creative, I think, is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, I mm. do it as a challenge, kind of, you know, a creative challenge in my life. Yeah. And I do it so that I can share some of my images with other people to inspire them. And, nice. and in doing so, they might, you know, um, praise and worship God, mm. uh, or they might feel like they want to engage in artistic in endeavors. I love that. So, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Um, so you're currently working on the death of omnipotence. Is that what you said? Correct. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Super curious. Um, what, how far along in the process are you? When is this book going to be released? And, and maybe give a little bit about the premise. It, I love the provocative title. You do really well with those titles. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I expect it to be out in the spring. Beautiful. Um, the first chapter is showing that the Bible doesn't affirm divine omnipotence. Mm. Now, for some people, that doesn't really matter because, you know, the Bible isn't that important. But for yeah. me and for people in the tradition I'm part of, you know, what the Bible says is important. And yeah. so I'm I'm laying out the uh, words in Hebrew and Greek that have been translated as almighty and showing that the, they're mistranslations. Mm. Mm. And then I'm dealing conceptually with questions about, you know, even if the words uh, of Scripture don't mean almighty, uh, do the concepts or do the claims about what God does, should we understand them as meaning that God is omnipotent? And I'm, yeah. saying, I'm saying no on those. No. Uh, the second chapter is in dealing with, I, I got a clever title for the second chapter. It's, I uh, bet dying the death of a thousand qualifications. <laughs> and so, you know, I start off with maybe something that I mentioned to you when you were my student, but yeah. you know, there's a, a, an old question. Can God make a rock so big that God can't pick it up? I remember this one. I do. Yeah. 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 Oh, and, so of, good. and of course the, it's a hard thing. To, it's a paradox, right? Right. right. Whatever way you answer it, it's going to limit God's power in some way. Yep. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are tons of these kinds of questions that mm. both progressive and conservative Christians, Jews, and Muslims have been asking for centuries. Right. And uh, there are so many, there's more than a thousand, actually. There are so many that I'm going to say at the end of this chapter, should we really continue to call God omnipotent if we have to qualify it over and over and over you know, people will say, yes, God is omnipotent, but God can't lie. Yes. God can't stop existing. God can't deny God's self. Or yes, God is omnipotent, but God can't take away free will that God gives. Or, you know, there's just tons of these. Um, and That's so that so whole good. chapter is going to be kind of a philosophical uh, exercise. I love that. You know, I, I guess I didn't think yeah. about it before when you said God can't. We're people have always been saying God can't do something. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, that's and it's really in the Bible itself. I mean, it is. The Bible's got at least a half a dozen examples of things God can't do. Well, and I want to affirm something you just said earlier that um, progressives 
and conservatives alike, atheists still use the Bible. And I think they realize how important it is and yep. inf influential it is. Christianity is the largest religion on the planet and people take it seriously. And people and folks know that if you want to affect change, especially, you know, if you're trying to open up the door for LGBTQ plus people or yep. other areas of justice, the Bible is the key to unlock a lot of people's um, voting habits. So it's important yeah. that we do engage with the Bible in a way that actually opens up maybe some doors for people. So I, I want to affirm that. I think it's important that we have scholars like you that are helping us to understand the Bible in very different ways than maybe we were taught. Good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Actually, the, the third <clears throat> chapter where I deal with the problem of evil, I'll be kind of rehashing some stuff I've done in those previous books like God Can't. Mm. But I want to add a section that kind of addresses what you just addressed, and that is um, how do we think about governments and justice in light of um, you know, policies, politics, et cetera? Yes. Because uh, so many people have thought of God as sovereign and, and thought that governments that were sovereign were much better. Mm. Uh, and we've set up these systems in which it's very hierarchical and there's a, uh, a whole lot of power at the top and very little at the bottom, right. which just breeds injustice left, right, and central. Yes. So part of what I'm going to talk about in that chapter is that if we have a different view of God's power, mm. we also actually might have a different view of politics, government, and how social justice can be achieved. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. I, last chapter of that book. Can I give okay. you the four so, chapters? Four chapters. All yes. right. All right. <clears throat> the last chapter is kind of answering some of my critics ah. because my best selling book has been this God can't book. Nice. Yeah. And, um, and people will say to me, Oh, God can't. Well, you know, does that mean God just does nothing? Is God <laughs> sit up on Mars eating popcorn, you know, and Sounds saying, fun. you know, good luck down there, Dave, <laughs> you're on your own. Um, no, I think God is active hmm. in all creation at all times. God's even the most powerful, I think, but God can't control. So this last chapter, I've coined a new word and the new word is, Amipotence, A-M-I potence. A-M-I is the Latin for love. Mm. So what does the power wow. of God's love look like? And so that's wow. the last chapter. Oh, love that. And I saw that on your blog, the am Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting. Oh, what an interesting concept. God's eating popcorn on Mars. Yeah, for sure. I think, <laughs> I think, because, <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it is, uh, it comes out of this, um, and your critics, obviously, you can probably anticipate what people are going to criticize about a certain thing. Um, sure. And one of the things that I would love to see this message get out there more and more for is to respond to um, things like everything happens for a reason. These causal, mm -hmm. yeah. this, well, this happened because it was supposed to for my betterment. And, it, yep. you know, I think what you're promoting is not only likely more faithful to the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, but also it, it's, uh, it promotes us like a uh, general well-being that moves beyond our hyper individualism. Ah, uh, good point. You know, I think that's very, very interesting and, and um, could be a source of, of promoting uh, more engagement with maybe social justice issues 
Right. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. That I understand love is promoting overall well-being, which means we have to look past our individual, our group, our, you know, the, in our tribe. Now I'm not saying we, we never think about our own good. I'm, I'm right. not denying self-love, Yes, but overall well-being asks, okay, what's the common good? How do I act to promote the good of the whole, not just my own individual good? Mm. <clears throat> okay. So I know that, you know, within, within this idea that God can't, or that God, not necessarily that God can't, but let's focus on what the God, what God does do. Okay, good. Um, if God is actively loving and God is the most powerful source, um, so then we attribute the things that are the most loving to God, the the motivations to do good. Like, what are some of the things that maybe you could point to that are, well, this seems like evidence of God's love in reality. Yeah. So the hypothesis would be that God is the source or inspiration or power behind all that's beautiful, good, excellent, you know, friend, uh, promoting well-being in terms of friendship, all these sorts of things. I, mm. I have a book called Pluriform Love, and the, mm. the thesis of that book is that love takes many different shapes. Mm. So uh, when Dave helps somebody out, I would want to say God has not only inspired, but empowered Dave to do that. Yeah. Now, I don't think that God temporarily made Dave into a robot such that when Dave says something good, it was entirely God that made it happen. Mm. Rather, I think that God retain or that, that, uh, sorry, that Dave retains agency, but he cooperates with this loving spirit we call God. Mm. So I think God always acts at all times and all places, prompting people and all creatures to do what's good, helpful, promoting well-being. And when we respond or cooperate to that with that prompting, then we not only see the fruit of God's action, but we also see creatures cooperating with God. Mm. Love that. All right, beautiful. So with with your with this concept of God. Um, there, you know, within the tradition, within uh, evangelicalism as a whole, there is a belief of there's a fall. Um, people are sinful and born into sin, right? So this, this is a particular tradition. I know there are quite a few, right, right. but this is a particular tradition, probably one that you come up against the most. Um, yeah. We're born into sin. And then unless we accept this atoning sacrifice with blood, then on the day of judgment, you're you're in the lake of fire or you're on a cloud eating popcorn or eating popcorn on Mars with God. So like, which I'm going to use a lot from now on and always credit you. <laughs> um, but what do you do with that conversation about God's judgment and atonement? Um, because these are central to the way that people think about what it means for God to be loving and just. Yeah. I think there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to God's offer to love. Mm. So sin, I think, is saying no to love in a particular moment. And there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to well-being. Yeah. Sometimes we as the ones who do the sinning bear the most of those negative consequences. But since we live in an interrelated world, we also affect others negatively. Mm. Right. I do not think, and this is probably going to surprise some people, I do not think 
God ever punishes in this life or the next. Mm. So I don't have a God who's going to kick your butt if you step out of line. Mm. However, your butt's going to get kicked by the natural consequences that come from stepping out of line, from not choosing to love. Yeah. And so we have reasons to avoid sin that aren't because God's going to, you know, hurt you or harm you or spank you or something. But you want to avoid sin because you want you and others in the world to live a good and more wholesome and healthy life. Mm. And that means that I don't believe in the traditional idea of hell. Mm. Now, I don't think that God just says, ollie, ollie, income free and forces <laughs> everybody into heaven. Because yeah. I don't think God has the kind of power to force us to do anything. Mm. But my view, and I call it the relentless love view, mm. says that God relentlessly calls us to love and offers us this love relationship in this life and the next. And God never gives up on anybody at ever. And because God never gives up, there's the real hope for the kind of universal salvation that so many of us want. But it's not the kind of guarantee that could only come if God forced people mm. into a loving relationship. Mm. But God never gives up. Yeah. Oof. All right. You definitely, you definitely are troublesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I do appreciate it because I'm someone that's left the tradition. I have, I've mm. exited. Yeah. Uh, and it is actually very encouraging and always challenging to talk with people like yourself who've stayed in mm. and have, and push for more. Um, yeah. For more love. For you know, yeah. which which is what I think it feels like a prohibitive prohibitive space. Um, you're you're trying to change that that from within. I think that's really really powerful. Mm. Um, and I guess that's yeah. That I guess would be my question. I'm assuming something here. Um, when you do your work, uh, I imagine your motivation is to create more openness, more love. Um, yep. How do you imagine uh, that? not how do you imagine i guess like what where do you see that going do you see this like idea hopefully changing policies within you know maybe your own denomination or um, other christian traditions yeah yeah i mean i want love to win hmm. and it doesn't seem like it's winning right now at least not every place all times yeah so um there's a lot of ways love can win. Uh, we can think about it in terms of individual uh, relationships. We can think about it in terms of groups, group policies, uh, governments, I mean, uh, societies. I even think in terms of civilization. What does human civilization today need if it's going to become a loving civilization? What does yeah. that look like? Right, right. That's uh, so good. Yeah. And yeah. that... That means, I think, trying to promote overall well-being in a wide, wide variety of ways. So it's not, you know, it's not like a narrow-minded view of what counts as good. There's lots of goods in the world. Hmm. Not everything is good, but but there's lots and lots of ways to express love. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes, I guess it makes me think, you know, when you connect this to governments and systems, you know, uh, we often talk about systems uh, being sick in some way. I would I would argue that they're not sick. They if they're functioning well, they're exclusive. They're controlling, um, and mm. and so there are 
always going to be people that don't fit in or don't benefit from a system that doesn't it doesn't make it sick it's just when something happens uh where it looks like people are getting hurt or oppressed by that system it's just exposing the fact <laughs> that you can't control everything or leave room for everybody within a system right. uh yeah. and so i guess i wonder with this uncontrolling love of god who can't uh but who is all loving what is what in terms of earthly human uh, policies or governments or structures could that look like? Are we talking about an anarchy? Are we talking about, you know, um, communes? What what might this look like in a religious sense or in a sort of governing society kind of sense? Yeah. It doesn't mean absolute anarchy if mm. absolute anarchy means absolutely no structures whatsoever. Yeah. But it does mean that every voice matters. It means that relationality matters. We shouldn't think of ourselves as isolated individuals, but we're interconnected with one another and with the earth. Mm. It means that when we think about policies and systems, we have to think as widely as we possibly can. Yeah. All people that might be affected and creation that might be affected. So we have to have a as broad a vision as we're capable of having. Mm. Now, I happen to believe there is one who has a universal vision. That's not me. And that's this loving spirit who's universal that we usually call God. Mm. So uh, I think part of what we need to try to do is discern what this, the nudging of this universal spirit has for us. Mm. Uh, that's not going to be something we know with 100% certainty. There's always going to be errors, but I think that's the, um, the spark toward the kind of, loving civilization that I think is actually possible, uh, even though it's going to take some changes in perspective for us to get there. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.